0: Welcome to Searching the Sacred. I'm Jason Stephan-Hagen,
1: I'm Steph Spencer, and I'm Lisa Adams.
0: We are hosting conversations about scripture for the curious doubters and hope seekers. We're inviting people to ask different questions, questions asked by those who have been wounded and hurt, questions asked by those who have deconstructed and are looking for a reconstruction. We're creating space for love, kindness, justice, and curiosity. We will wrestle, we will question, we will dance, we will dream, we will wonder, we will be frustrated, and we will hope. We aren't searching for singular answers or solutions. We are searching the sacred. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Searching the Sacred. We are excited that you are joining us after a long series on the Book of Ruth. We are diving into the Lenten journey, and specifically Holy Week, and today we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 15 with Jesus on the cross. This is moments before he passes away, and Lisa is going to get us started. So Lisa, take it away from Mark 15.
2: Uh, this is out of the New King James Version, I'm going to read verses 33 through 39. Now, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, "Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani," which is translated, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" Some of those who stood by, when they heard that, said, "Look, he is calling for Elijah." Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Then when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Okay. We're in it today. (laughs)
1: Lisa, great job on the uh, reading. Aloy, Aloy, like that. That's always like, uh, I'm curious about our listeners when you when we hit things that haven't been translated.
2: It, yeah, where they come from, how are you saying them? There's like a bump. I did, I did research it a little bit to get a few different uh, ways that people pronounce it. It was never the way that I normally pronounce it, so. You did great. Right, wrong, in between, it's all good just do it confidently
0: that's right
1: i i'm curious just what pops up for us when we're in this section of scripture there's usually feelings history
2: questions what's there as a starting point
0: i think for me there's like there's the two things of like this being something that i've heard so often growing up in church like all my life you know and Every year there's an Easter, every year there's a Good Friday, every year there's, you know, some sermon series leading up to Easter where we're probably going to be talking about Jesus dying on the cross, and this is one of the pivotal moments. And so, we you know, there's many others, you know, where Jesus turns to John and, you know, and Mary and talks about them taking care of each other, and there's there's these other moments on the cross that we can point to, but this is also one of those seminal ones that that seems to be one of the more painful ones. And so sometimes I hear it and I'm like, okay, yeah, I've heard that before. But then other times I hear it and I'm like, Woof. there's so much happening in those five verses or six verses, whatever that that Lisa read, where, I mean, we have Jesus crying out, he's quoting something. What's he quoting? Why is that significant? We have um, the veil being torn. What's the significance of that? We have the centurion talking about being the son of God. Now we could either just blow that off as like a no big deal like oh yeah sure of course he's the son of god or like maybe that's something hugely significant and 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 all of that's happening in just a handful of verses and so yeah there's just a, there's just a lot there
1: mm-hmm. very typical of mark too mark is very um efficient, <laughs> efficient. so it only takes six persons to to say this let's just go
0: oh yeah right like there. I was reading the beginning of Mark because I was trying to find something about Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, and Mark's got like two verses. After being baptized, Jesus went out into the wilderness. There, he was tempted by the devil, and then he returned. And it was like, wait, what? That's all you got, buddy? Like, uh-huh. come on. Which th-
1: that I mean, that's maybe even a place to start is to notice. Sometimes we've been in traditions where where we feel nervous when the gospels don't line up with each other, when Mark and Matthew and Luke and John's accounts are different. One of the things we've been doing in Forty Orchards during Lent is we've been saying, what if What if we actually lean into the ways they are different and say, these are four different perspectives on who Jesus was and what he did, how he lived, what the significance of those things were, and the differences in storytelling can actually be important for us to notice and to, to lean into instead of trying to make it all sync up. Which sometimes we've felt nervous when it doesn't sync up. Um, so succinct, this uh, saying it in six verses is one of the things that makes Mark <laughs> unique in his perspective.
0: Okay, so let me ask the question. I know you're normally the question asker, but like, if you were to like put Mark in like a not a box, but if you were to try to like say, okay, what are some of the main themes for the book of Mark that we that may play a role in what we're hearing here? What are some of those themes that? we should be like catching because we're, we're not in gospel land. We're in Mark land, you know, like we're diving specifically into that. So maybe what are, what are some themes that the two of you are just instantly picking up because it's, it's Mark saying it, not someone else.
2: Well, I think, I don't know if it's particular to Mark. It's just for me, when I read it, I try to think of like where are the allusions to, the older testament, like where do I, like where do I, where is maybe something? I don't know for sure, but I feel like there's something that could be there. And so I like it's interesting that um there's darkness over the land for three hours. Like I know there's some significance with three, but that feels like that's significant, like that's drawing, like that's just an interesting detail for Mark who doesn't use a lot of words. That's an interesting detail to really make sure that we're keyed into there's something happening there. Um, I think I, I'm a little bit curious about Elijah, like, what, what's the deal with Elijah here? Um, it feels, it feels a little weird. Um, probably because I don't pre 40 orchards, I would have not been able to tell you anything about Elijah other than it sounds a lot like Elisha. And then I never am quite sure which one's which (laughs) 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 like that. Like, to be honest, like my traditions just didn't really like nail that in. Mm-hmm. Um and then there's something about um I think at some point I read this. So I, I'm not saying that this like I think I read something about like the language that Mark uses in the very end with the temple like the veil being torn and son of God is very has some um glimmerings of the baptism of Jesus where the mm-hmm. heaven Like is torn, like the heavens open, and the Mm. spirit descends. So, like, there's something kind of interesting to think about that too. Of um, why might Mark be pulling on similar language from the baptism to the crucifixion? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Those are the things that are kind of rumbling. Well,
0: that that makes that's actually really interesting. We don't need to dwell on this, but like that that raises a question for me, or like a, a wondering, because there are some scholars that. When you read the baptism account, you don't know who can hear what. Like we don't know if Jesus is the only one that hears the voice from heaven, yeah. um, or if it's if it's everybody around there that hears it. And if it is just Jesus hearing, "You are my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased." Like that is a very beautiful, intimate moment of calling of you know presence and all that good stuff. And it's really beautiful. But the tearing of the veil in the temple is a very public thing. And so it's almost like we have a private calling of Jesus and now we have a very public, um, everybody's has access to this intimate space with the divine, right? Cause we're, we're now the Holy of Holies is open to, to everyone in a way.
1: Um, just to affirm Lisa, um, uh, it is the Greek word schizo um which which is a word i'm saying like we know that word because schism and like it that that is a word that kind of connects into english so it's to to divide to open to break to tear asunder um and it is in mark 1:10 the heavens are torn into or opened they're schizo and in luke and mark 15:38 the veil is schizo torn into so we have the same word Mm. um being used in both of those um circumstances and I think when I think about what Mark is doing I think I I think about his succinctness and it makes me pay attention to when he's giving detail exactly like Lisa said that it's less to me about the themes that he's sharing as a whole because that's I don't know I think I think themes are a little debatable (laughs) I think a little bit more about that style like if he is normally succinct then when he gives a detail that should catch us. Why is he giving that detail? Why does that detail matter to him? Because he is told the whole temptation in the wilderness in two verses. So when he's saying things like what time it was, when he's saying things like using the same word to connect, like what's of importance to him there. I'd love to start in verse 33 with this darkness piece. And to think about different ways that we can understand darkness and why darkness is happening there. So it's, it's from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, which is from noon to three o'clock, um, essentially. But So if the language that is being used there is sixth hour to ninth hour, but between noon and 3 p.m., it gets dark. Maybe we can start with how have we heard it described? Like, what are different things you've heard people say about the darkness? Have you heard people say things about the darkness? Or do we not talk about it?
0: I mean, (laughs) the the only thing I can really remember is when I was a kid and I was hearing like, you know, God was upset and sad with what was happening to God's son. So God made the world dark to basically reflect the mood that God was in saying it out loud as an adult I'm like mhm like moody god okay like I just don't know if that really flies maybe I mean like hey like yeah I don't know we're all made in god's image and I'm as moody as the rest of them so sure um but I just don't uh, to me there's like a I don't know Lisa what do you got
2: well I w- well what I was thinking about I mean as you're talking about it, I was like oh yeah it's interesting cuz like in my head like, the picture, the images that I've created in my head from the hearing the story is that Jesus is, like, on the cross at night. It is dark. Like, there is something about darkness in it. But I don't think I've ever thought about it being, like, it's from noon to three. And in some ways, I'm like, well, that just means everybody's going to pay attention. Like, like yeah. that feels like that's a, like, that's not that's not normal. Like, something, like, this is, like, a moment of, like, pay attention, like, drawing me in although like did like at three did it suddenly become daylight again or like is it or like is this like again is this like metaphor like is mark doing a drop into something else or like is that actually yeah that thing got it got dark
0: Mm -hmm. you know it it feels like something that should be in the book of john to be honest because john's much more theological and like mystical in a way because it sounds like a very like all of creation is in rhythm with the Christ. And when the Christ is being crucified, all of creation is like dying with Christ or something. And so it, it feels like it should be in like the book of John, but here it is in Mark. And so I I I think I naturally go to a more mystical theological space of like, okay, is there something about all of creation hums with what God is up to and is trying to move towards restoration and grace? And yet here's this cataclysmic moment where like pure love is being crucified. And so creation itself is like, like the rocks crying out in a way. It's like, no, you know, like, no, like, what are you doing? Um, And I mean, I say that out loud and I, I might not be as corny as a 10 year old, but now I sound loony. So I don't (laughs) don't know which one to land on.
1: Um, Okay. So maybe what we can look at for, um, Mark is Mark one, verse one, I think tells us a little bit about Mark and maybe even a way to understand the darkness for how Mark is telling the story. Um, Because Mark one, verse one, anybody, have you, you flipped there on time or I can read it too. I'm there. What do you, just
2: one verse one. Yeah. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, as it is written in the prophets, behold, I will send my messenger before your face. Who will prepare your way before you? The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the ways of the Lord, make his path straight. So, what are the first words of Mark's gospel? The
1: beginning of uh... the beginning. So, when we think about the gospel writers using this language and they are writing to people who are familiar with the Hebrew scriptures. He is starting, this is the beginning of the work of Jesus. If I hear the word beginning, I'm going to be thinking about what book? Genesis. Genesis. And actually in the book of Matthew, it's very clearly tied. It's actually the exact same phrasing in Matthew 1 and Genesis 2 um, as they start. And so there's a real clear tie to Genesis happening. So when we think about darkness and we think about Genesis 1, what is
2: darkness? I mean, it's kind
0: of the birthplace of creation. Like it's going to be sure. going to come from that chaos, come from that darkness or and the lights, going to pierce the darkness in a way like it's going to, you know? Yeah.
2: That br- okay. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Well, that, Cause that, I mean, I'm gonna jump out of Genesis and pop into Exodus then. Cause it's the ninth plague that's the darkness but it's the night It's like right before like it's right before the the self, the, the saving act is coming that everything's going to change it is like the darkness is where like everybody is exposed to it everybody has access to that everybody's in it together and this is where
1: where you're jason sounding less loony to use his words to see to see that actually this is a pattern that's been repeated in the story and if we're paying attention to the story if we see that mark is alluding us to the story by the starting words like he's starting with the word beginning he's also starting by referencing a prophet he wants us to remember the story that has come before and how this is the next iteration of it and the story that has come before genesis 1 1 begins in the dark Darkness is a new beginning. It's the chaos of what's coming next. In Exodus, the ninth plague is darkness, and it is everybody experiences darkness, and it's the thing that happens before salvation is going to come. In the tenth plague, here we have darkness happening from the sixth to the ninth hour. Everybody's experiencing it. Something is going to shift in this moment. What if the darkness isn't a sad god, but a preparing God. A preparing God. A liberating God.
2: Invitation to everybody to pay attention.
1: An invita- mm-hmm. inviting God. Everybody pay attention right now.
2: Yeah. Something's happening here. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, and I think that's like, you know some some people and this is maybe moving us off topic for a second but i think that's one of the things that people have asked like well could jesus have died in a different way and still been done what what took place or could you know could christ really be the the savior and the salvation without the cross could it have been a different type of death and there's something there's something and this sounds like the wrong word but spectacular about a crucifixion there's something like you're being put on notice Like, literally, there's a notice above you, you're on the roadway from one place to the other to tell people to not be like this, you know, like, it's, um, there's, there's such a focal point that um, I think at some level, the crucifixion forces us to pay attention, because it is a crucifixion, not to say that those weren't common at that time, because unfortunately, they were. But there is something notable about it. It wasn't just some other form of death. It was this form of death.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and the question is, what in it are we paying attention to, perhaps? Or that's at least one question. Like, what are we, what are we being invited to see?
0: Well, I think that's a great transition to like the, the phrase that I think we're, we so often hear during this season, right, of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, And not to move us along quickly, but like, I think there is so much to unpack in this, these verses. And and that one's always been a a really controversial one for me. Um, And I'm guessing for others, because there does seem to be so much distancing happening for a God that we hold to be Trinitarian, to be unity and love. Forsakenness is a big phrase, Mm -hmm. or at least it feels like a big phrase.
2: Mhm. It makes me
1: think of um I oh gosh. I I hesitate cuz I'm going to s- speak negatively about a resource that in many ways is a good resource, but maybe it just allows the writer to be human. Um the Jesus Storybook Bible. I used to read it to my kids and they and there was a storytelling in there that really made some of the stories come alive and really feel like just beautifully told for children. But the way it's told the story of the cross in this moment was um, for the first time and the last God turned his back on his boy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I remember remember every time I read that, like catching on it, (laughs) like, is that true? Is that really what's happening? Is that the way I would say it? Like that sounds so to read that to a child feels so
2: wrong,
0: yeah, I, I actually stopped reading it that way. I I remember the first couple of times I read it that way, and it always made me catch. And then, as I've unpacked my own theology and tried to wrestle with what is this scripture really getting at, what is the cross really all about, I've actually stopped reading that part of it because I I, I that isn't for me what's happening. <laughs>
1: And maybe that maybe maybe you're talking about it, because you clearly still like the resource too. Maybe that's one mm-hmm. of the things we need to say about this section of scripture and as a whole is all of us are human. Any preacher, any writer is interpreting, and you don't have to take a hundred percent of their interpretations when you're reading what they put out in the world. Just because it's said well doesn't mean it's right or the only way. So mm-hmm. it's a good resource with many great ways of phrasing things, and that one is a catch. Mm -hmm. mean, that's
2: okay. I mean, it's interesting too, because I feel like there's also this part of me that I think has um, understood it or read it to be like this. For me, it really reveals Jesus's humanity in some way. Like it, for me, it feels like, well, that's a very human, that feels legit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like in some ways, I like to be human. For me, I mean, it feels like sometimes that like, it feels like you're alone or it feels like you're like, I don't know if I'd use the words forsaken, but like, I feel like God's not listening or not paying attention or why Mm -hmm. isn't God fixing this thing or like all the hopes get tied up in there. And so there's something also that like, I go both ways on, (laughs) like there's a part of me that's like, Oh, it helps with that feeling of despair and, but I also, it does make me wonder about God's presence in the midst of it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it, it helps to remember to think about that, that Jesus is quoting Psalm 22, verse one here. Like these aren't just words that are coming from him. It's a quote, um, a little mix of, and that's even perhaps why it's not translated or why Mark said it this way, that he's saying this, which is translated as because he's crying out in some mix of Aramaic and Hebrew that's really connecting with that verse. Um, And that verse says exactly what he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's written by David. Um, So how does that affect how we hear this to think about Jesus quoting a psalm as compared to
2: this being a unique utterance? Well, I knows the knows the scripture really well. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know that I quote scripture in the midst of my <laughs> my moments. That's a helpful <laughs> tool to remember.
1: What, Jason? I'm curious what you have to say because I know you've spent some time with that with this verse.
0: I mean, there's a lot to say. I, I and it's so hard because we don't know the tone in which this was said. I mean, we, we have other areas of scripture, right. Where Jesus is like having conversation about, you know, John, you know, here's Mary, you know, now she's your mother and, you know, and Mary, this is John. He's now your son, like take care of each other. Right. So like, you know, Jesus is having conversation with the other thieves on, you know, on the crosses next to him. And so like, and yet this seems like a, a moment where, he seems to be crying out like, like in real pain. And, and, but yet, like Lisa said, he's quoting something. Like when I'm in real pain, I don't think of like my favorite poem or song or movie line. Like I, I tend to, you know, just yell or something. And so like, I guess I just don't even know the mindset of Jesus, but he is quoting something. And it, and that, that, that means that I should be curious, right? Like it's not just a, and then he yelled really loud because he was in pain, like, where are you, God? Right? And it just is his own unique phrase of desperation. Like, nope. he didn't choose a unique phrase of desperation. He chose this phrase of forsakenness or desperation. Why? And
2: and isn't it like if, if the older Testament's being quoted in the newer Testament, aren't we supposed to pay attention to the whole thing and not just like that particular, like Like, wouldn't it invite you to the whole passage, not just like, so like the whole of Psalm 22, not just the first verse, like, isn't that kind of how that works or not? Am I making that up?
1: Well, I think it's a good practice. Um, So I don't whether nice <laughs> No no no, but I'm saying I don't know it's hard to know the intention of the authors in that. so I'm not sure if that's what they intended or not or even I don't even know enough I'm not enough of a scholar to know if that was a literary practice. I'm not I'm not a scholar Maybe I shouldn't just say I'm not enough of a scholar um, and it's a good practice to think about the whole of a psalm and not just the verse or to think about in that case that this is a psalm of David what's going what kinds of things happen in David's life is a good way to think about it.
0: Well it, it, to me it's it's one of those like not only what's the intention but like would anybody hearing that be able to think of anything else right because when you're we got to remember like education at that time is not going to school and like having tons of textbooks you're like memorizing scripture because you don't have multiple copies and so they're memorizing the psalms that's one of the first things that are taught to young children is the psalms because it's sung it's singable it's that thing so like they very likely would know this pretty well, right? I mean like this wouldn't be an uncommon thing for people at that time to know, like Psalm 22, a psalm of David of all people. And so even if Jesus didn't like have in mind, okay, now I'm going to trigger the rest of the psalm, everybody else there may know the rest of the psalm mm-hmm. and be aware of it. Um it's almost like if I were to quote a passage from like a favorite song of mine that's like on the radio The rest of us are going to know it, whether I. Well, or like if I
1: just said to be or not to be.
0: I would say that is the question, right? You know what comes next. Right.
1: Right. Well, if you go ahead one psalm,
2: we're in the Psalm 23, and most of us can recite the whole thing by heart without. Right.
0: Right. Right. So, yeah. So I I think there is a whether they would scholarly study it, like what's he implying here? Mm -hmm. I think they naturally would know. What that psalm is about, and what that psalm is actually about isn't isn't abandonment and forsakenness it's actually the opposite that psalm is a psalm of presence and a psalm of promise. it's not a psalm of "I have been forgotten and will never be redeemed again
1: Let me read verses one through five and then say more about that Jason okay to the chief musician upon a Shahar, a Psalm of David. I read that just because we're not always conscious that that's actually a part of the Psalm. Like the, those those notes are a part of the Psalm. So that's the beginning. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And the words of my roaring. Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you hear it not. I cry in the night, and I'm not silent. But you are holy, O you that inhabits the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you; they trusted, and you did deliver them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not confounded.
2: And I think as you
0: go on in that that whole chapter, there's actually a lot of things that seem to be alluding to maybe what Jesus is experiencing. I won't say like one-to-one like a crucifixion, but there is a lot there. So there's... Um, There's verse seven, all who see me, mock me, and they sneer at me. They shake their heads. We know Jesus was mocked uh, relentlessly while on the cross and being tortured. Um, We can look further down. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. We know that when someone is crucified, they're often dropped down into the hole where the cross is, and it actually shakes most of their bones out of joint. We know that when Christ was pierced in the side, to find out if he was alive or dead, the water comes out first and then the blood. Um, And so I'm being poured out like water. Um, I mean, my mouth is dried up like a pot shirt and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of of death. Um, There's even a part of the Psalm where it talks about uh, casting lots for clothing, which we know they did um, for Jesus's clothing. So, I mean, there's so many allusions to what's being experienced in these moments, that it seems like Jesus is really drawing us into the fullness of what's going on in this passage, just by saying the opening line, like mm-hmm. He's like, "Y'all know what's happening here, right?" Like, and then the the beauty of the psalm is um, is the end, right? All the earth, all the ends of the earth shall re- remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before Him, for dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. To him indeed shall all who sleep in the earth bow down. Before him shall bow down all who go down to the dust, and I shall live for him. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord and proclaim his deliverance to a people yet unborn, saying that he has done it. I mean, it's a song of restoration, of reclaiming of the lost, of liberation. To me, it's a very hopeful psalm, even though it's a very painful psalm.
2: So then what do you hear in Jesus quoting it? Like, or like why?
0: I think I was so often taught like the Jesus storybook Bible that this was the moment that God turned away from God, the son. And they were as separated as they possibly could be because, and I, as my theology once taught me, Jesus was filled with the sin of humanity and took all that upon himself on the cross, and because God is holy, God couldn't put up with it, and so God abandoned Jesus to a death, whether to atone or to penalize Jesus on my behalf or because the devil required it, whatever type of substitution you want, and so God couldn't do anything, didn't want anything to do with it, and then Jesus goes through with the crucifixion, and it is finished, and then God and Jesus are again united because now Jesus has accomplished the mission of being the substitution for all of our pain. I And I think this verse is where people often go to that. See, Jesus was experiencing the abandonment of God, the forsakenness of the Holy One. I actually think it's the exact opposite. I think Jesus is trying to say something to us. I think Jesus is trying to say, and I'm gonna try to put this really succinctly. I think Jesus is trying to say, it may look like God has abandoned me. But it's the opposite. This is how we overcome all of the evil and despair and all of the ways that we divide ourselves and we use power over each other and we try to kill love. This is actually how we bring it back. And don't give up now when it looks the worst because it does look the worst. It looks like God has forsaken me, but that's not what's happening here. And so to, that's why, to me, it's so hopeful. It's almost—I I think Jesus, in the worst moment, is actually saying, "We're not done yet," and the "we're" is plural for a reason.
2: Hmm. Lisa, what are you thinking? You've—you've you've been deep in thought. Um. Well, a lot of it feels a little bit like it's some of it. Like there's so much old history of teaching for me. Like it's a, um. Like these are those spaces that are hard to like oh well what do I what do I what do I think about it? if I try to take off all the different ways that I've been told this is what this one is this is what it is, this is, what it is um, i i mean i can i mean I can see everybody's logic between all of it, <laughs> but I also feel like what if, like, God is like. For me, part of the thing that I believe is true about God is that God doesn't leave us. That like God is always present to us. That's part of the that's part of who God is in my in my belief set. And so it gets a little complicated when we're like, Well, Jesus is both human and God and what's God doing and what's Jesus doing and what's the difference? And then where's the spirit and what's the You know, like there's something like it gets super complicated and I'm like, I don't want to do complicated. I kind of want to do simple. I don't think it's supposed to be something that like keeps me out or keeps me like there's something about what's happening that's supposed to reveal to me who God is. And I don't think it's revealing to me that God is a God who's going to kill God's son. And that's what feels like a lot of the old theology was, is that that's like God loved me so much he would kill his son to do that. And that doesn't feel good. Like, I, that's not who I want God to be. That's, I don't want to, that's not a God that I want to hang out with, that I want to be in relationship with. That doesn't feel safe. That feels risky. And so in some ways, it's like all those things start to kind of wrestle around in there of like, oh, what do I actually think about who God is? Like, sometimes it's like, read the text and let the text speak to you. And other times it's like, take what you believe to be true about God and set that in front of the text and then read the text. Mm-hmm. like sometimes i have to practice doing both to kind of see where where the landing strip is <laughs> mm-hmm. um but i i like the idea that jesus is reminding us of like that it might look it might feel like forsakenness there's more
1: which i think that is life giving to me or when i think about when i've wrestled with what to do with the cross, which I think is, I just want to time out a minute and zoom out to say, because I don't know if we've mentioned this on podcast before or not. When I was in seminary and someone assigned a book on atonement theologies, plural, I was surprised and shocked because I did not know there was more than one. And so sometimes That's a part of this conversation is just to name out loud that if you are somebody who has been deconstructing or struggling with what they believe about church and God to say, historically, there have been several theologies about how to understand the cross that have all been within orthodoxy. So that's why it's worth wrestling with to say this is put in front of us, let's wrestle with what we think about this. And let's notice that there's lots of ways to hear and understand this. There is more than one way to hear and understand this. And parts of me, when I was moving away from a penal substitutionary atonement theology, which is the fancy name for what Jason talked about earlier, that like God separating sin, killing Jesus because of that. I kind of just wanted to avoid the cross and like throw it out. But what I keep coming back to is that It seems that those who are in oppressed positions in society go back to Jesus on the cross a lot, Um, that they find hope in Jesus on the cross. And so that always makes me curious. What is hopeful about Jesus on the cross to people who are experiencing poverty and oppression? Because it becomes a part of things like liberation theology, that you're looking at the crucified Jesus on purpose. And so what are they seeing that I'm not seeing in this moment? Where are they finding resonance and why are they finding resonance there? And what is that? What avenue might that give me to re-explore what I think is happening in this moment as compared to some of my frustrations with how I've understood it in the past? So one of the people I go to in those moments is Richard Rohr. So I want to read, I want to read a Richard Rohr quote, um, about,
2: um, about the cross and
1: the crucifixion. This is from his book, The Universal Christ. If we do not recognize that we ourselves are the problem, we will continue to make God the scapegoat, which is exactly what we did by the killing of the God-man on the cross. The crucifixion of Jesus, whom we see as the son of God, was a devastating prophecy that humans would sooner kill God than change themselves. Yet the God-man suffers our rejection willingly so
2: something bigger can happen. Yeah, I think elsewhere he says
0: that Jesus was the scapegoat to end scapegoating, to show the fallacy of that mo- that method for how we do,
2: like, how we negotiate power as humans. Like, it, it, it only ends up in death. Mm. Okay, say that again
0: that scapegoating someone else for your problems for your own power, putting someone else down, saying they're to blame, they're the problem, that new way is not healthy, let's go back to the old way or let's do this because they're wrong. Whenever we scapegoat another person, another system, another individual, whatever it is, we often do it for our own benefit and it typically leads to death and it ultimately leads to death because that's what power tries to do is it tries to get more power and it ends up killing everything in its path ultimately.
2: So there's a way that we can look at the cross in this moment and this um,
1: Psalm 22 to say, okay, it looks like power is winning. But maybe by giving into this whole, like taking it to its very end, it allows us to see something about systems and power that we couldn't see without this God-man of Jesus taking it to its very end. Maybe we can also see a God who's willing to suffer to that point to help us see, to build that relationship. Which then of the darkness, and that we already have the, the combination of the darkness with this quoting of Psalm 22 that we have this hope in the midst of the difficulty that feels like something other than a platitude. Like another, I don't know if it's another way to understand this or just a more personal, less systematic level to understand this, but like this idea that when I am in the worst of it, there can be something coming from it feels also like it could be a part of this, that we have this darkness, which is actually what happens at the beginning of things. We have this Psalm that's talking about liberation that like, it looks bad right now. And it authentically feels bad. Like Jesus crying out these words is an authentic, this is really, really hard. And there's a hope being shown at the same time. That's not a sugar-coated kind of hope. It's like a I wonder if it's giving us things to cling to about how this world functions. Like we can, there's something deeper we can hold.
2: Well, even beyond this, this world too, like it's a, it feels like both and like, there's like, this is not the end. Death is not, is not the worst thing. That's, that's, that's not the worst thing, no matter how we're holding that, that there is um, like, that's the beginning of it. Like I, it feels a little bit like I. God, oh, this is such a dance. Which I, this is why you think it hard because you're like, what am I saying that like? Then it's all about heaven. He's <laughs> not trying to say that, but there's like, there's a way that sometimes, like the fear of dying. Like we all, most of us are trying to not die, mm-hmm. some way, shape, or form. We're trying to make decisions that let us live. If it's the beginning, what's it? What's What's at the beginning of? Hmm. Hmm. That's a great question. If this moment is the beginning, what is at the beginning of? And much like our lives, it's not instant. Hmm. <laughs> it's not revealed here yet. Well, I think about it. Like it reminds me of. Like honestly, I've
1: I've heard. Um. Like they do, they, people talk about and study like what causes transformation in people's lives. And we want it to be reading. We want it to be a TED talk. We want it to be prayer. In actuality, it's suffering. There is little in life that is more transformative than suffering. And it's the weird stuff where you don't want to prescribe to someone else's life that what they really need to go through is some suffering and change. But like when you ask people in hindsight to tell their stories and what caused this thing in you to be birthed, why are you the way you are? Most people that inspire us have had some sort of suffering in their life that has been a part of birthing that part of themselves. What do we do with that? That feels complicated to say, right? Cause I don't want that to be true. I don't want my kids to suffer. <laughs> and there's something about suffering that brings new beginnings.
0: You know, just to double down on that before we dive into like the ramifications of it, when I was doing some doctoral work, um, I was studying the faith development of college students and trying to find out that how did those who held a more mature sense of faith, one that's a little bit more generous, willing to think critically, one that's willing to wrestle with hard things, ask good questions, is able to create space for others to go on a faith journey. Um, I was trying to figure out how did you get there at such a young age? And I did like a multi layered approach of questionnaires and focus groups and all this stuff. And one of the big findings was that for those that presented a more mature, nuanced sense of faith, they had all experienced some pretty major trauma, and especially trauma around those who were most critical to their faith. So, you know, it was the passing of a loved one who was really close to them at a young age. It was parents who were the ones shaping their faith, getting divorced. It was... Uh, being raised in one version of of a faith and then be and then leaving that and having the entire community reject you after that, so you're basically abandoned by those that were shaping your faith. Um, and so these these major traumas within either their faith or within their very their, their lives, they all talked about them as being the catalyst or the space in which it forced them to ask hard questions: Who is, who is God really? like what is what is Jesus really all about what what role does prayer actually have in my life um does the bible make any sense anymore and because they were in that space of trying to figure that out they went on this journey and they were able to hold their faith a little bit more generously and create space for others to do the same um and so i mean again not to say that we wish that upon anyone but that is tends to be the fertile ground for something more. Mm-hmm.
2: Which I think that just points us to like, really start to wonder and to wonder about who are we listening to? Yeah. Um, Cause like we do learn from each other. It's probably not always the source of our deepest transformations, but in some ways the way that um, for me listening to like women of color and their perspectives, their theologies their lived experiences has been the most shaping of my understanding of who that is and the potential for that, which would make sense coming out of um, their lived experiences. Like that, like who, who do we know that understands suffering differently? And in particular, if we're talking about losing a son, like black men are killed in an exorbitant rate, a black woman is going to like, there's just some things that I feel like, we don't elevate it into this space of, like, theological, like, witness to us. Like, like those are the, that's not who's in our pulpits for probably most of us here and our listeners. <laughs> We're mm-hmm. predominantly pretty white. Um, I mean, is- we probably belong to a church that's predominantly white. And we probably have a lot of white teachers and a lot white authors. And, like, that. that's a dangerous place to land. And trying to figure this stuff out not that there's not suffering amongst us not that we don't have individual sufferings that we can relate to and have like there's pain but there is something unique in people for, for some folks that teach us a lot
1: this is live time from what lisa was saying and i'm going to like give a pre-warning that i don't know if this is going to hold <laughs> but it's from it's a combination of what jason and lisa were saying here so I wonder if, if the reason that suffering is transformative is because suffering causes us to let our idea of who God was die. And if that's a part of the visual we're being given in the cross, because in verse 32, they're taunting. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross, save themselves. They're seeing God as a God of power. That's when it gets dark. And when it gets dark, Jesus is naming this language of forsakenness. And maybe it's even a play to say we have to let that idea of God separate from us. We feel forsaken when we misunderstand who God is, that that when we're expecting God to be a God of power, who always rescues, who always saves, who always is always there for, who always making our life happy, life is not that way. That idea of God has to die. And what if that's a part of what's happening in the cross is that idea of a power God that it always is for my benefit has to die. When that God dies, the real beginning of a life of faith begins where there is room for suffering, where there's room for the other, where love is bigger than power. And if this is a visual of letting that theology die.
0: There's like, I don't want to add to that. There's something to add to that. That's Well, just...
1: it doesn't break down for hey. me. So. <laughs> At least not yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, because I th- I feel like that's what suffering does, right? And we're like, why is suffering transformative? It's because something pushes us to let go of something that we've been holding on to. Um, and until we're pushed to let go of that, and what if part of the hope of the cross is that we don't maybe we maybe we don't have to have suffering. Maybe we could look at this cross and say that picture of a God that always wins is not true because that's not a God that's with or like, depending how we understand the word win that that was maybe the wrong word, but, but that power victor thing is maybe not quite the right picture. And there's a witness here. That's different. There's a messiness. That's different. There's an intimacy that's different in this moment. That is a different picture of what Messiah looks like a different picture of what love looks like a different picture of what God looks like coming through suffering.
2: That's interesting. Cause like, I like my brain immediately, like there's still a lot of stuff that like rumbles around in there that like pushes fast. And I was like, well, yeah, but he is omniscient, right? Like he's, omnipo- like, he's omnipotent, like he's got like <laughs> all the omnis start popping through my head. And I was like, you know what, but God can be all powerful and choose to not use the power. There's something that like, right. Like, and maybe that's also a lesson for us of like, it is not always that we should be using our power. Sometimes you let
1: it go. Yeah, maybe that's the picture of God being given to us here. God is choosing to let God's power go for the sake of love. Yeah. That's why Jesus dies. And that's a picture of a different
2: kind
0: of God. And it makes sense that we don't want that kind of God when we're suffering. Yeah. You know, it makes sense that we don't want that kind of God when it causes me to not live the comfortable life that I've gotten really accustomed to because my privilege allows it or fostered it, whatever.
2: Um, But that's...
0: But my privilege and my power are at the expense of somebody else's life.
2: hmm.
0: And that is ultimately
2: death. Mm -hmm. and that
0: can't be the right thing. and It it can't be gospel. It can't be good news that my thriving means your suffering. That can't be good news. It might be good news for me, but that can't be good news because if it's not good news for everybody, then it's not really good news.
2: And I wonder about how that
1: statement leads us, Jason, to the temple curtain being rent and torn of like Jesus dies and the temple curtain is torn as the heavens were torn in Jesus baptism like what what might that connection be to this conversation we're having?
2: I mean, it's so hard for me not to see
0: that from a Western lens because I grew up, you know, in America, Minnesota, like very individualistic society. We're all personally responsible for everything. We all have this personal relationship with Jesus that we're encouraged to have. So like, there's not a collective nature to our cultural experience our societal experience, our, our our faith experience, right? It's all individual. And so on that level of the individual, feels like there's an invitation to the Holy of Holies, to the connection with God, to the divine that is saying, now you have access. Now you have no excuses, Jason. Like you are, you've been made aware. You've been made aware fully. You've like Christ has died. The veil has been torn. Now you have no excuse, but to recognize
2: that those with power uh, you, you
0: you better be careful with it. Um, now that's a very individualistic way of seeing it, um, but that's the first thing that
2: pops into my mind. I was thinking about it systematically,
1: so then maybe this balances between the Perfect. two.
0: Characters. Please share.
1: <laughs> of well, because. When Jesus is alive, one of the things that he does the most is speaks, or he, at the same time as being loving and liberating and healing, and what he is doing, he is not afraid to speak hard, harsh words to the religious authority. And I think hearing those words is well as important and as tricky because because he is not anti-Judaism; he is anti-religious power, and he is and he is particularly like. Poking on ways that the power structure of the thing has gone wrong. Um, and with with the and so I'm curious about sort of the visual of it's time for a new system. Like this thing is beyond repair. This system has become too corrupt. And in this visual of letting your, your picture of God die, I also want, like, we're also going to let our picture of the institution of worship die. And because we're, there's going to be, there's something new happening that isn't going to, that hopefully is going to hold power differently.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Whether or not the church passes that test is another question. Cause I don't think we do hold power differently, but, but that there was the potential to hold power differently. There was the potential to shift things based on, on that, which I think that, um, I mean, that goes back to something we've said in a podcast, maybe it was last Lent of like Jesus dying at Passover, not at Yom Kippur. And that this is all happening in the context of the festival that is about, liberation from narrow places and the thing that happens when he dies is that this temple curtain is torn it says to me that that is the institution that had become the narrow place that we're needing to be freed from and what does that mean and look like that that's happening as he dies
2: yeah that's good yeah it makes me think about then like what institutions am I a part of that I need to Like, where are the systems? Like, where am I? Where am I complicit in systems?
1: What if this is supposed to be a picture? If we make it just about the temple, then it's just something that happened. What you just said, Lisa, makes me curious about if we go through these experiences where we let our picture of God die because and we allow some way we used to hold God to die in order for a more expansive view of God to be born. What system that we have been a part of then needs to be split along with that new picture of God in order for that expansive God of love to be present in the world? And how are those two things that naturally kind of go together is let that picture of a power God die and let the systems of power that go along with it die and awaken to something that is
2: more humble, more loving, more. Expansive. It's hard to answer what those things are that need to be split open today. I mean, it's
1: it's easy if I don't make it about me. I guess if <laughs> I just say that thing over there that I'm not a part of <laughs> needs to die. Well,
0: um, it's. I, th- I think you're. I think you're. 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 You're right. It's. It's easier to point out systems that we're not a part of. But there are many systems that I know I'm a part of that are not healthy or that I'm connected to in some way, shape, or form, or benefiting from in some way, shape, or form. Like we could look at the education system and how it's tied to property taxes. Well, it's really convenient living in the suburbs, right? There's a lot more expensive homes. They, uh, we can hire better, better, better teachers. Like suddenly the education goes up and it just, it's all, it's all great. I'm benefiting from that. My kids are benefiting from that um what's really hard is to imagine well is there a way for this system to be different like how would schools get funding if it's not attached to property taxes how could we equal that out without like i mean like i'm sure there's solutions out there and i'm not a politician to figure out how the budget works but like to me there's a an overwhelming nature to some of this um and a lack of education, like I am just not educated enough in how government works. And I'm a commissioner for the city of New Brighton and I sit on the diversity, equity and inclusion commission and I don't have any idea. So like <laughs> I should know this or at least have some general knowledge of it compared to my neighbor who not a commissioner. Like, but anyway, so there's me just, yeah, there you go.
1: Well, I I think what that's doing is it's inviting the wrestle. So this is like, um, there's a way that these familiar passages are about Easter in a way that makes them not about our lives. And to do what you're doing right there and say, okay, what if there's stuff for us to wrestle with in our own lives from that? What if it's not just about theology? What if it's about today? Or theology in a way that is about today—that it's not just segmented out to be about whatever my atonement theology is. But what if this is meant to be about the way I live, and it—it's supposed to keep informing the way I live as I look at how God is in the world. Lisa, that made you laugh.
2: Well, because I was thinking sometimes you just want your damn ham and Easter lily and call it the day, like <laughs> you know, like right, like there's this, like there are these things, and then I was like, well, that's just stupid. Like, right. (laughs) But like, we don't preach these things outside of Easter. So we actually don't get the opportunity to wrestle with it because we want to have a celebration on Easter. Like, right. We, like, we want to, we like to do the jump. We like to make it happy. It's Easter bunnies. And, and none of that is necessary. Like, it's not, I feel like there are times where you do need some joy in some spaces. But it also just means that, like, so then when do you wrestle with it? When do you make space to wrestle with this, to think about it, to let it be okay, to wonder and to ask questions about it and to reflect in your life, like, where can I make systemic changes? Maybe, I mean, we're, we we do not have to change everything. I'm not responsible for changing everything. But like, if I just take on one thing, can I take on one thing? Can I take, Mm -hmm. can I just? What, what's my thing mm-hmm. that can at least work towards something else?
0: Yeah, and and I and I think the the connection, you know, to the cross and the theology piece, it feels like we're getting off in this like systemic thing, and how do we change this? And how you know how is that connected to the cross? Well, to me, growing up, the cross was always about. The cross is the vehicle for being saved, and so therefore you can go to heaven. but the question was always like, "Well, what are you saved from in the way I was always taught, you're saved from going to hell, and what are you saved to to going to heaven? okay well let's pause on that. Let's imagine that heaven isn't just this place that we go to when we die, but heaven is supposed to be this present reality that we're that we are taught to pray for that heaven and earth are to be one and that heaven is coming here. And so now when we ask the question, what am I saved from and what am I saved to? Well, maybe hell is a way of experiencing disconnect and power over and death right here, right now, unjust systems. Maybe that's hellish. And maybe what I'm saved to isn't just a heaven in the sweet by and by in the sky, but instead heaven is this present reality of shalom and of harmony and of justice and of grace that's meant to permeate our present reality which would mean both individually and systemically doing really hard work and that that is what salvation is or can be or is a version of salvation is a movement towards shalom a movement towards you know grace and justice and love ultimately uh,
2: to
1: me that is just about like is or not just um do we consider the work of faith to be ongoing action or to be consider it to be like a one and done choice and we often treat theology like a theology of the cross and easter sermon as like a it's, it's already done versus however I hold this as an ongoing act in my life. Wrestling with this passage is an ongoing act in my life. Um, and that that difference of holding this as ongoing leads to those kinds of differences for, that you're talking about. That like this isn't just something that I have to have a correct doctrine about is actually something that seems to be meant to inform the way I live here and now. Even just in like when we think about like in Mark after Jesus is risen, the the angels say in chapter 16, do not be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has been raised. Um, there's a way that we're meant to remember that Jesus was crucified and that Jesus has been raised as a way of an ongoing way to hold our faith, not as it doesn't seem to be a doctrinal thing. It seems to be more than that. Not that doctrine doesn't have a place, but it seems like we're being pushed to have it be deeper than that. And so the challenge for each of us might be different than in that, like how I'm holding it in an ongoing way might be different than how you're holding it in an ongoing way, and how our listeners are holding it in an ongoing way, and that's okay. But are we remembering to do that? Are we remembering to return to this concept and to wrestle with how it informs our life?
2: Mm-hmm. I must say two things. One, well,
0: this this journey of theology of trying to wrestle with the cross and penal substitutionary atonement, or this different view of the atonement or what is it all really all about? Is it about going to heaven or is it about something more present? Is it about an absolute single momentary choice or is it about an ongoing relational dynamic of, of movement towards justice and love? I want to, to remind myself to be appreciative of the journey that I've been on because it's, helped inform who I am today. So I don't want to just throw out everything that came earlier in my life because it taught me something, it gave me framework and it it helped it helped me figure out who I was. Whether that's a version of me that I love or not doesn't matter. It helped me with who I was and and who I was becoming. With that being said, one of the questions that I can't help but ask myself is with with a version of the cross that is simplistic and absolutist. This is the way it was. This is what it accomplishes. Now you don't have to think anymore. Who does that benefit? It tends to benefit those that don't have any problems or don't have any struggle because they don't need anything to change from it. They just want to know that it solidifies their place on the sweet bus to heaven. The problem becomes when you are suffering or you are marginalized or you are systemically oppressed. Then agreeing to that, yeah, it might be nice to trust that you're going to heaven one day. But that doesn't change the reality of the suffering I'm experiencing. So the cross better be more than that. The cross better be speaking to the suffering that I'm experiencing. And I'm not trying to identify with those experiencing systemic pain by saying it that way. That's where I think the theology needs to evolve. It needs to transcend and it needs to be more inclusive. Because if it isn't, well, then again, it it might not be good news.
1: When you hear that, just to take that back to the text, the instant thing, like the temple curtain is torn and it's instantly good news for the centurion, who is a person of power, but is an outsider. Um, And then the next group talked about is women. Um, And so to say like there's this way it has to be beneficial to more than just me or something is wrong is even what the text seems to be pointing to. It's like instantly about these groups that might have been considered outsiders in different ways um are
2: mentioned right away yeah i just want to like encourage anybody who's like listening to this and going i don't know those all those words are (laughs) like what the (laughs) hell are y'all talking about (laughs) and i just like in some ways this is the like there's a way to talk the language that is for the for the journals and um education spaces. And there's also like this really simplistic thing of like, we all, we all are theologians. Everybody is. We have a theology of who God is. That's what it is. Who do we think God is? And so don't think you're outside of it because the words are big sometimes when we're trying to talk about it. There's just, it's just this distinct way of saying things that sometimes like all of us here have been, have spent time in the halls of a seminary. And so, for us, that that we can fall pretty quickly into some of that language. So, don't feel like you're out if any of this is like, <laughs> like you don't have to Google up the words. It's okay, um, and know that like you're you can make you can do this. Like you can come up with the things that you believe about God by reading the text and coming to something on your own, coming into it with other people and talking about it. Like that's an okay space to be in. it's actually really helpful to sometimes wrestle with it outside of all the other big stuff because those create big dominoes which is why like oftentimes I joke in my like the books that I'm reading now like that are the the heavy theology books I'm like I think they say the same thing 5,000 times just a little bit differently every time and I wish that they would just say it once in a very easy sentence to understand and they don't because they get. I don't know. I think they get paid by volume. I don't. I don't <laughs> what happens because there's. Well, this can be both complex and easy.
0: And and to kind of just yeah, I, at least I think you're, you're you're so wise to to remind us all of that. And and also I, I think what's what's helpful too is that some of the most profound theologians have not been the ones that find themselves in the halls of great academies, but some of the greatest theologians that we've ever had have written spirituals in the fields. And those words echo in our lives much more than some fancy doctrine ever will. The question is, is will we listen to them? and and for some of us will we ever be exposed to them will will they ever be brought to our attention and so for me one of the things that i'm taking away from this as a person of power and privilege and as a pastor is what authors what voices am i putting in front of my very white privileged congregation to learn about god to learn about the cross because yeah the on Easter they're going to hear it from a white male but is that the only voice I'm going to bring to the conversation
2: it shouldn't be so show up
0: on Easter at peace united methodist <laughs> community in Shoreview and hold me accountable
2: uh,
1: that's like that feels like a both a deep and lighthearted way to close the conversation in a beautiful simultaneous um, oh that was funny thing
0: <laughs> you know i love how these conversations that we've done around advent and now like the lenten journey and like leading up to good friday and easter there's versions of these conversations that are really just nice and and like fluffy but like it's just not it's not and like it's it's hard and i think that goes back to like the idea of like transformation happens through suffering and um man we gotta do the hard work gotta do the hard work This podcast is a partnership between 40 Orchards and Processing Faith. 40 Orchards invites people to wrestle through biblical texts using the ancient Jewish concepts of Midrash. In a 40 Orchards study, every question is safe, everyone is welcome, and every voice is valued. We believe there's room for all of us. No person and no question is off limits because we know that together we can expand each other's experience of what is sacred, whole, and good. You can learn more about 40 Orchards and sign up for a study by going to 40orchards.org. That's 40orchards.org. Processing Faith is a space created by Jason Steffenhagen for people to do exactly that process their faith. It's not one thing, but more like a good recipe. It's like one part pastoral care, one part theological exploration, and one part wrestling with all the questions. You can learn more about processing faith and sign up for a free 45 minute session by going to processingfaith.com. Thanks again for joining us on Searching Safety.